This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Glenn. <laughs> and you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Already laughing, because it's a yeah, laugh riot. you never know what's happening right before we start, and... Well, we always, so this is... I never uh, stop cutting up, so... You never stop cutting up, but this is our second to last podcast in our remote recording stations, which we talk about all the time, probably to the boredom of our listeners. And we have to do the sync clap, right? Because we're both at our houses, and it's three, two, one, clap. And to our ears, it always sounds like we're clapping, right? Doesn't it always sound like we're not remotely in sync? Never once has it sounded like we were in sync. But the last two times, we apparently did an amazing job of it. But this time, we didn't. And it's like, it never makes a difference to us because it never sounds right to us. So it's like a total crapshoot whether it's Brandon entirely whether genius. or not Brandon approves or not. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> and I just feel like since it's two separate tracks, you just sort of take them and you sort of move the sync points together and then they're synced. But I don't know. I don't, that know. That, I don't see how that could be true either because... If this, I just don't know how it could possibly I have work. no idea how any of this it's works. It's the time delay factor that I cannot account for. Yeah, yeah. No, I can't either. I can't either. Okay, that's enough. That's enough inside baseball. Anyway, so we did it once and it was terrible. And then we did it again. And I think it was terrible again because Brandon sort of pulled a face. <laughs> but he's like, yeah, all right. Because he just doesn't give a shit. Like, that's it. I've had it. Yeah, yeah. That was great. Get out. <laughs> But the, the the what I'm struggling with right now is that apparently we did it a great we did a great job the last two times and, and so now I was we expecting suck. since We're there's no way sucking. for us to tell if we did yeah. a good job or not. No, because okay. it looked just as bad to us previously <laughs> when we were doing it perfectly because it's totally. impossible with time delay to hear what Brandon is hearing. Yeah. Okay. You want to know what else sucks? This is just, it's a litany of suckage on today's episode of TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. I made a pot of tea. <laughs> Perhaps we should and rename I use, the podcast. Christopher and Eric sucks. Christopher and Eric sucks with an X though, because we're 12. Right. So I made a pot of tea and we we both own our own Breville tea maker, which it has a little basket that you put the loose tea into. And then this magnet sinks the basket into the boiling water. Well, I didn't close the lid on the basket enough. So my tea has like floating leaves in it. It looks like a lotus pond. And it makes me feel unsafe, and I think I'm going to have to cancel today's recording. Thank you for your understanding during this difficult time. <laughs> I know there's a lot going on in the world, but I don't want shit in my tea, even if it's the stuff I just so. Do you made own a strainer? No, don't make things complicated. You know, I don't. I don't need you to minimize my pain with constructive suggestions. So, do you own a strainer? I own multiple strainers. So I have you could a whole just pour it through the strainer. I could, but then I wouldn't have anything to complain about. Eric well, Stockwell. that would, we would all be so sad to hear that. 
Okay, I'm sorry. That's all the time we have for witty banter. We need to get into my 14 pages of notes about this true crime special we both watched. Which is about Bigfoot. What if Bigfoot is a murderer? Is Bigfoot guilty of murder is the question. (laughs) Multiple homicides. A brutal... But wait, but wait, let me explain what it what? is we're doing. What? We're do- what? This is- but wait, but wait, but wait, but wait, but wait, but mom, but mom, but mom. Um, this is the second time we've done something called Christopher and Eric's True Crime Special Edition. And it is like a supersized true crime TV club. We're doing a three episode show in one episode of our podcast. So it's, it's not going to be a three day weekend and it's a holiday yeah. weekend. And we thought if you wanted to listen to it, then it would be something to listen to every day for the three day weekend. And if you don't, we'll just tell you about it. So either way, win, win, as they say, even though they don't usually know what they're talking about. I, I don't. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know about all that stuff. You just said you came up on that on your own. We're going to talk about all three episodes of Sasquatch, a Hulu original documentary series in one episode of our podcast. It will not be a three hour podcast that we're no. doing today because I'm no, not no. I'm too tired. I'm talking about what the party people can do who are listening ah. on a three day weekend. I we're see. just going to t- condense it all down into, you know. 45 minutes of us running our mouths about how Sasquatch is really all about us. Um, (laughs) But they have the option, if they wanted to, of watching the whole show. So it's supersized, but the show's not supersized. Okay, good. I'm glad we cleared that up. But also, it's what we're reviewing that's supersized, but it's not a movie, it's a miniseries. It's a miniseries. It's available on Hulu. It's a Hulu original. It's called Sasquatch. That's it. That's the whole title. It's big, it's feet. It's big feet. <laughs> it's big feet. Don't let me forget to make my point about subtitles. I teased it on our last episode because our last true crime TV club was in Italian, which we didn't know until we both started watching it. It was also terrible. Um, we are, there is a <laughs> subtitles point to make. Spoiler alert. It Spoiler was terrible. Alert. It was terrible. Um, it was just a mess. So I made the mistake of saying last in our last episode, well, thank God nothing in Sasquatch is subtitled. And then I realized immediately that that is not correct. And we it's will tell you how and why. absolutely not true. Once we get into Once it. Okay. it starts being subtitled. All right. I'm just going to dive in like I always do. And you're going to grab me by the scruff of the neck and start talking when I miss something that you want to I'm talk gonna about. I'm just going to interrupt and say random cute things because that's how <laughs> I operate. You're just going to say shit. All right. That's correct. That's how it goes. The subject of our documentary, aside from Bigfoot, is a gentleman named David Holdhouse. David Holdhouse today is an investigative journalist, but when he was 23 years old... I listed him as future investigative journalist David Holthouse in our show notes, which is maybe a little ambitious. Um, when he was 23, he traveled to Mendocino County. If you're not familiar with Mendocino County, it's in the northern part of California, north of San Francisco. It's heavily rural. It's heavily wooded, forested, mountainous. It is part of what we come to learn is called the Emerald Triangle, and that is made up of Humboldt County. Never Mendoc- heard that. You'd never heard of it? I've never heard of the Emerald Triangle. I've heard of Mendocino County. But I haven't heard of Humboldt. We can call I've heard of Humboldt. I've heard of all of it, but I just had never heard of the Emerald Triangle. 
I think and the, that term was like, hmm, okay, we can go with that, but I don't know where it's known as that, but it's not anywhere near here. Well, I knew it as that, but I'm way bigger in the illegal marijuana growing community than you are. <laughs> That's why it's called the Emerald Triangle. Clearly. No. I have no role in the illegal marijuana growing community. Oh, is it because of the marijuana that it's yes. called the Emerald Triangle? <laughs> I thought it had to do with it because it was the green verdant part of the, no. the country. I... <laughs> no, the Emerald Well, that would explain why pot. I haven't heard it then, because, yeah, I'm not hanging around with nearly enough, you know, potheads. Uh, Ali- that's uh, back also the... not true. That can't uh, possibly that's be That's really not true. Been... Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to the, the the nerdy part of this. So the history of the area is very troubled, but it is it is sort of remote and lawless. And so when David Holdhouse is twenty three, he's bouncing around different professions, whatever. He's kind of itinerant. He goes up there to work on one of these illegal marijuana farms. Um, one night he's hanging out with the owner of the farm, and a terrified farmhand comes running in and tells them all that there has been a gruesome brutal murder of three farm workers and that the marijuana bags nearby were torn up and shredded all over the place but not stolen would suggest that theft was not the motivation of whoever killed these three men and um <laughs> tore them limb from limb tore like, them limb from limb that's not why i'm not laughing just, but yeah not just killed them but literally like tore them to pieces pull their heads off and stuff it was they were scattered all the bodies were scattered everywhere i was i guess it was because there were three heads that he knew that it was three people but uh, it seemed pretty horrific Brutal. absolutely horrific now the part that i mistakenly left out is that when david arrived on this farm and first started working there there were rumors all over about very aggressive Sasquatches. Apparently, it is not Sasquatch. I. It is Sasquatch. Is the plural of Sasquatch or Sasquatch? Is it Sasquatch? Party people Squatch weigh in. Sasquatch Zetti. Sasquatch. Multiple aggressive Sasquatches. Sasquatch. Multiple Sasquatchito are reported to be in the area, messing with people, doing something called bluff charging, where they like run at you to make you go away, and if you don't go away, they charge again. I don't know. So the guy- Also, we would like to point out that uh, it's a dark, rainy night, and there are a lot of uh, young men in their early 20s and a lot of marijuana. So I'm expecting that there's also a lot of- Everybody in this story is probably stoned to some degree. Oh, which, this is my... Which I think really probably colors a lot of the story itself and the reaction to it. But And here's maybe my but least... But it's the inciting incident of the three-hour extravaganza. Right. David Holdhouse is in, it's 23, and he hears this terrible story. And the guy says a Bigfoot murdered... These three guys, the crazy guy, the farmhand who came in says, and the farm owner's like, okay, uh, sure, that's enough now. You run along. We're going to go back to smoking our weed. I'm going to jump way ahead and say at the at the end of the second episode, David reveals to us that he was also aware that this farmhand who came in to tell the story was high on meth. And so... Yet he holds back that information until the end of the second episode. So and the, make of that the what you stimulants will. were very popular among everybody during harvest time in this area because it was so much work to do that everybody imbibed their stimulant of choice, many of whom, many of them were imbibing meth. So, yeah. Absolutely. 
So stoned and high on math. Great combination. So today, David is paranoid enough. So today, David has become obsessed with this story, this memory, and he isn't even sure that he remembers it correctly. So he finds a buddy from that period who he was working at the farm with and says, do you you remember this? And he says, "Uh, yeah, I totally do. Um, But when David goes looking for missing persons reports that correspond to the time period, he doesn't find anything that would account for three murders. And by this point in in David's career, he's actually kind of an accomplished... Yeah. um, Undercover, at least, journalist, but he has done a lot of investigative journalist work going undercover with the Nazis and going undercover with uh, any number of other mm-hmm. uh, unusual groups, really subsuming himself into dangerous situations and uh, covering the stories. We get a little background on him. So it's like, okay, is this like the retirement project? It was interesting to me that at this point in his life, he goes back to his own ghost story from his mm-hmm. own youth. And decides to say, you know, that's really a hell of a thing. That guy showed up that night in the middle of the night and said, Bigfoot killed these three people. Like, I think I'll look into that. And he begins as a fairly legitimate journalist to investigate a pretty crazy story. Um, He hires a private investigator who's local to the area, who he never identifies by name. And it'll become clear why in short order. Uh, he, the first episode is really dedicated to exploring the Bigfoot mythology in the area. The people who believe that Bigfoot is real. He's sort of setting up Bigfoot as a potential suspect. Um, David is also, I'm going to say this now. I don't know why they don't reveal this until later, but I think it'll allow us to focus on the mystery. David became famous as a journalist in addition to doing all those things you described because he wrote publicly about having been raped as a young boy, as a seven-year-old boy. He was raped by a high school student, and he wrote a piece um, about how he was found guilty of stalking the guy later in life because he had so much anger and pain about the experience. And they show a clip of him being interviewed on ABC News about it. And he presents this as part of an explanation for why he has always felt like an outsider, but why he has, and these are so his own So he's been a words. monster hunter. He's been a monster hunter, but he's been comfortable Going undercover with criminals, like when he he embedded with all those groups that you mentioned, well, like the neo Nazis. He didn't. He said he didn't have very high self esteem, and so the consequences to the potential consequences to himself didn't seem that important. Right. Like the fact that they could kill him or you know disappear him or whatever didn't really seem like a big enough deal to him because he had this sort of additional um, baggage and did not value his life as much as maybe the rest of us would when the idea would be, well, I think I'll go in bed with these Nazis and see how that mm-hmm. turns out and mm-hmm. write about people who might want to kill me for writing about them. Right. <clears throat> but what the question he sets out to explore in episode one is, is there anything in the Bigfoot mythology that suggests Sasquatch kills people? And the answers he comes up with from the experts, I'm putting in air quotes, that he talks to are mixed Some people say, oh, yeah, they just see you as a big slab of meat. And others are like, "Mm, you know, one of them is such a sketch that even though he is speaking to us in English, here it is subtitled. 
<laughs> to subtitle it, he won't sit down, which should tell you a lot about what he just smoked before they got over there. He's interviewed standing up behind his sofa, like he wants the sofa in between him and the, the camera. walls of the room, and he has to be subtitled because he's talking so fast and so incoherently that he just simply um, is not somebody that you're going to be able to understand otherwise. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. We cannot rattle off the names of these Bigfoot experts in the first episode without giving special consideration to, I think, the first openly gay Bigfoot enthusiasts, I'm going I to call them. I loved that. I love that they were identified as life partners and... Bigfoot people. Enthusiasts, right? <laughs> they were Bigfoot enthusiasts and life partners. These Big two... Part. Yeah. Big Wayne and George. Guys, they were great. Wayne and George are what they're called. They're interviewed once. They appear briefly towards the end of the series, and they didn't get nearly enough screen time for for my preference. I was very upset. But I think it may be because the minute they got on camera, they started fighting with each other. I do not believe that. Yes, you do. That's absolutely what you believe. Like, it was just, I mean... I'm going to say under 60 seconds and they were fighting and then we don't see them again. And I think that was the problem. But here's the thing. There are divisions in the Bigfoot community, which they did not begin to explore, which (laughs) Wayne and George brought up. There is a group of Bigfoot enthusiasts who believe that Bigfoot is capable of teleporting, that there's an extraterrestrial connection, that there are portals involved, which explain why Bigfoot can disappear so quickly. Which is what so Wayne apparently believed. In. Yes. Or he and doesn't want to admit, though. George accused him of believing it, and Wayne said, I don't believe that. Stop. You're lying. You Stop. do. You do. You totally do. Um, and off we went into, like, well, and that's the end of that interview. Um, we, there nobody was can... one guy. Who was the professor from Idaho? Dr. Jeff Meldrum. That was That's his name. the one. I wanted a half hour with that guy. Because he actually, the thing that he said that I was, that I had never had anybody say was, how is it that if this is a fake thing and this is all fraud and this is all made up, how is it that all of these castings of the big feet, of the giant footprint, match and Mm -hmm. include details that we would not have been able that we didn't even know medically they should include until mm-hmm. relatively recently and then he never tells us what those are and they never go back to him i really wanted to hear more from him i'm not saying i'm a big believer in bigfoot but he was of everybody that they interviewed mm-hmm. the most reasonable and scientific because 
He had hairs that he was comparing, and he was saying, this is a human hair, this is a chimpanzee hair, this is a bear hair, and this, I think, is Bigfoot hair. You know what I mean? But they were flickering by on the screen, and nobody was talking about them. And I was like, wait, go back. That was, wait, wait. Yeah, he was the most scientific of He was also a university professor. Like, the old trope in the horror movie is that if you're a university professor who believes something paranormal, they hound you off the staff. But he was at Iowa State University. He was in his lab at the university. Idaho, excuse me. What did I say? Iowa? Idaho? I was like, yeah, we didn't go to Iowa. That's too far. Too far east for this special. Um, yes. They also addressed the Patterson-Gimlin film, which if anything anybody knows anything about Bigfoot mythology, that's the famous uh, film reel from the 60s that it purports to show Bigfoot walking through the woods, turning and looking back over giving her a shoulder. Giving side eye. Giving um, side eye to the camera, right? And then storming off into the woods. Uh, episode two, we'll go back to the Patterson-Gimlin film, but in episode one, we meet Bob Gimlin. Patterson is no longer with us. Um or wouldn't be in the film, or whatever. Assume he's passed away. So it's I. I was pretty clear by the end of episode one. Okay, this is not really going to be a Bigfoot show. Like this is moving in a more human direction because the private detective basically says to David that the one he's hired, "You are asking some dangerous questions, and I'm going to have to 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 get off this case." Or maybe I've I'm got getting a ahead of myself. I want to. I've got a family. What happens is that at the end of um, episode one, excuse me, I think I jumped into episode two, the PI actually finds a connection. He finds an old guy that he knew who worked in the area as a marijuana grower around the time of the story that David has told. The guy has gone to prison. He's respected in the uh, legal marijuana community because he never rolled on anybody, and his name is Razor. And when David contacts the guy, Razor says, oh, you're talking about that story from 1993 with those three Mexican nationals. And that's the first time the ethnicity of the victims has been introduced to David's investigation. And he brought up the date that um, yeah. David knew was the, and David did not prompt him. He's, he yeah. brought up 1993. So it was really a connection. What became clear for me by the end of episode one was whatever happened there was increasing evidence that the murders did happen. How they happened or whatever, that may have still been up for grabs, but there was growing evidence that David could find that there had, in fact, been this multiple homicide, this gruesome crime had, in fact, taken place. And Razor introduces another piece of information, the location. He says, oh, it happened at that farm out on Spy Rock Road. Because David couldn't even remember where exactly... He was, at the time that he experienced this, he had driven out on a rainy, stormy night to meet a friend. It's still very unclear to me why David was going there in the first place, because it didn't seem like he stayed and worked the harvest and became a marijuana farmer. I think he was visiting a friend and he worked Mm -hmm. on the farm while he was there, but it didn't seem like a long-term thing. So he met the friend on the road and then he got into the friend's car and the friend drove him off into the wilderness down this dirt road up in the hills. And so he was not clear where he even was, let alone where the crime had taken place. Uh, right, and exactly. And there were two different unfamiliar locations to him, I think, because he wasn't, the crime I don't think was reported to have taken on the farm where he was smoking with his friends that night. It was in some other location, but he didn't know. Right, exactly. But their vicinity. So this is the point. After the connection with Razor is when the PI freaks out and says, "You're this is too dangerous. I have family. I live in the area. I'm out. 
And it's like, David's like, whoa, what the fuck? I, I, and somehow it's the connection with Razor and all the information it's turned up. Maybe it's Spy Rock Road as a location. So episode two. He didn't two, have oh, the name? Uh, not yet. Not yet. I think he goes to see Razor in episode two. He drives down to But Joshua I thought Tree. that the PI is the one who gave him the name. I don't know. Because we'll when he asks Razor about, because he asks Razor about the name, Razor won't talk about him. Like apparently, okay. there's some really badass character that some people allege may have had something to do with the killings, right? Who's still the present and still a force. And one of the things, and Razor was involved. One of the things they also brought up was that. This Spyrock Road in this area was under the provinces and protections, if not the outright supervision, of the Hell's Angels. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there's a growing element. Uh, there's a growing criminal element in and around the whole area, um, right? Around the the what call it, and that's kind of the where we enter episode two because episode two is really about the pot business. Yeah, episode two, right, and it's giving you a sense of what was going on in this region at the time of the murder, and the, and it explores something that was called camp, and I have to, I keep forgetting what, it was a militaristic joint operation that was designed to basically wipe out the illegal marijuana growers, and it's, it's, I, I what did it stand for, campaign against marijuana planting. They interviewed two former camp agents, Dale Ferranto, Mark Says, um, they would fly in with helicopters. They talked to stop. Let's set up the scene. Mm-hmm. Like the the area, the Golden Triangle was Emerald, yeah. Or the Emerald Triangle. Sorry, wrong jewel. Um, right. <laughs> wrong drug. Wrong tiara. I'm always mm-hmm. grabbing the wrong tiara. Um, was an area where a lot of sort of hippy dippy culture went to drop out. About to say that. They, right. <laughs> they went out into the the wilderness and set up these farms and then it became clear because there was nothing for them to do for a living that a great cash crop that they could plant in this sort of heavily wooded, pretty secluded area was marijuana. And Mm -hmm. that really kind of grew into a hell of a business. So you have these two areas. You have this kind of hippy-dippy culture that is in fact very much involved in the illegal, at that time, marijuana trade Mm-hmm. coming up against the growing war on drugs. Right. Which, in a series of campaigns, including this one, Camp, visited militaristic response to a kind of hippy-dippy community and mm-hmm. produced, I think, the result. That's why I wanted to be clear who they were flying in on. That's but, and right. Camp. I was so now yeah. a description of camp. Okay, so you've got a bunch of hippies on a commune growing pot, and this arrives. Right, and so they interview several of the hippies. There are a lot of they call there was like a mix of two groups: the back to landers and the hippies. And they they're in the title cards that they give to some of the interview subjects. There was a distinction. Some of them were back to landers. Some of them were hippies. They describe the scenes of these helicopters arriving, and there is a, a former lawyer for the pot growers from that time who he alleges and says one of these helicopters landed on a pot farm once and they just shot the dogs of the pot growers who lived there. There's no, there's not further evidence presented for that story, but the lawyer insists that it's true. 
Um, the helicopters landed in the schoolyard meadow next to that. Right. I mean, it was really... And these guys were like, you know, Top Gun guys. They took pictures of themselves with these giant pot plants that they had hacked down. Hanging with out of helicopters with assault rifles. And it was really a very militaristic assault on ultimately a rural agrarian community. And it had an effect. It had an effect and it led to an increasing paranoia among the people who lived there. And they uh, were more suspicious of each other. Were they going to sell each other out? Were they going to steal each other's crops? It had an effect of driving up marijuana prices in general because there was less supply. As Which a result brought of in a, an element that was interested in capitalizing on how much money they could make. Right. Um, the One of the hippies who was interviewed says that the first security store ever opened in town because people were installing security cameras. It's just what started out as this sort of la-la-la, free love, back-to-the-land movement turned into this highly competitive and dangerous industry. But the point I thought they were trying to make was that what produced that, that violence and that criminality and that sort of attitude was, in fact law enforcement's assault on the community. Right. And it was not intrinsic to the community going into it, but mm -hmm. it became the rule well, who was. And then the people who would rule in that environment, like the guy whose name they keep bleeping mm -hmm. um, among others, uh, were these fearsome characters, the hell's angels, this fearsome groups of people came in and got involved in what, was a lucrative, increasingly lucrative business and in a much more violent and criminal kind of way than had previously been the case. They just grew really good pot up there, apparently, because the soil and the growing conditions were ideal. Right. And it, uh, an increasing number of Mexican nationals began to immigrate to the area and try to get work in this industry because it was basically there were no records. Nobody asked for your immigration status. They began to employ them the same way a lot of farms in the Central Valley. I was going to say, was I, California them. has an enormous tradition of yeah. employing that same group of people in agrarian jobs the entire length and breadth of the state. Right. Cesar so, Chavez arose from that particular um, group of people to try and help people have more rights in that. But but it is a very standard California tradition. And uh, they interview a young woman named Diana, who's from Oaxaca, who talks about arriving in the area for that same reason. She talks about fellow Mexican Also nationals. with subtitles. Yeah, also with subtitles. But she actually was speaking Spanish. So yes. she wasn't just she wasn't so messed out she couldn't pronounce yes. words in English. Yes. Um, so David is meeting with a lot of confidential informants at that point. There are a lot of blacked out faces, a lot of people who want their voices altered. And he goes to a diner with a bunch of former growers. And one of them leans across the table and says, oh. After everyone has left the restaurant and it's just him and the growers left uh -huh. in there. He says, oh, I hear you're looking into those three Mexican guys that greased back in There it is. Yeah. There it is. That's where that name came from. And we introduce the name of, they call them him the alleged killer. We never hear his name. They never say it out loud on camera. They never let anyone else say it. And everybody. You're, you're like, you're about to say everybody's something. Everybody's terrified of him. No. Everybody's terrified. Yeah. Never once. And we even at one point get to hear from the guy. He calls in and. 
whatever his name might no, be. No, he's not the guy. He knows the guy. We're going to get to him. We have a nickname for him. But the, I don't think the alleged killer ever contacts them. Oh, I thought he did. I thought yeah, let's get to episode three. To a, there's a lot of ground to cover. Okay, so um, David also turns up a more recent murder of a Mexican national, and we learn that that gentleman is actually Diana's uncle. His name is Hugo Olea Lopez. He was shotgunned through the wall of his tent on the farm where he was working, and it introduces this idea that there might have been a lot of murders of Mexican nationals over the years that have gone unsolved because there is so little to go on. If there if there's no identification on the corpse, if there's no um, connection to uh, evident connection to a family back in Mexico, right. there's very little for police to investigate, and the police are actually interviewed later. Um, so the law enforcement, yeah, the law enforcement guy said that they we have bodies and we don't have any IDs. Yeah, exactly. So now David is beginning to swim in a lot of theories. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So David is talking to a lot of informants who want to remain anonymous and don't want to go on camera. And they are giving him different theories behind the motivation for the murders of these three Mexican men in 1993. And a lot of the theories center around this idea that somebody messed with the wrong daughter. And one of the informants says um, the problem or the murders happened because these three Mexican guys messed with the daughter of a man who is known as Bigfoot Gary. They, the uh, theory says that these guys raped Bigfoot Gary's daughter in 1993, and that's why he had them killed. So David goes on a quest to find Bigfoot Gary, and he's thinking... Did the crazy guy in 93 right. say Bigfoot Gary What did King? I hear exactly? Right. Because he's, this is all a ghost story memory from his stoned youth working on a pot farm quite a while ago. And yeah, did I hear him say that Bigfoot killed yes. these people or did I hear them say Bigfoot did this? And the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office, two of their members, the sheriff and a detective named Louis Espinoza, are interviewed on camera. They give some background about the difficulty of investigating the murder of Mexican nationals in general in the area. But a sheriff's office investigator who also goes on camera anonymously because he claims there's a hit on his life because he murdered a cartel member, or I should say killed a cartel member during a shootout, he says... I've heard pieces of this story, and you're looking for a guy named Bigfoot Gary. Then another confidential informant brings up Bigfoot Gary's name. So he goes looking for Bigfoot Gary, David, our subject, our investigative journalist, and he gets a phone call. <laughs> I love this one. <laughs> From Bigfoot Gary's wife, Carolyn. Carolyn. Carolyn has had it with this story and this investigation and she calls him on the phone and has plenty to say 
Do you think uh, they call her Bigfoot Carolyn? That's not how they identify I, her. I don't think anybody would dare call Carolyn anything other than uh, Carolyn. I think yeah. she would have your ass if you did. She calls this guy up. She's not got a moment's hesitation, and she leans right into it. And she's got the receipts. She says, I mean, my husband did not live here in 1993. He worked here before and after. He was nowhere in the area. The only daughter he has is the daughter that he had with me, and she wasn't born yet. So there's no way that he would have murdered anyone for having raped no his daughter, daughter. There was nobody who's been raped, and he wasn't here at the time. And she's, she's what should we call it? And he says, well, could... Uh, does Gary verify this? Could I talk to Gary? And she was like, Gary, you want to talk to this yes. guy? He's, He's apparently sitting, sitting right, right there. there at the ki- <laughs> She's just had it at the kitchen table. She snatches the phone up, calls David up and starts ripping him a new one. I she's mean, had one. it with these rumors about her husband who yeah. may or may not be a pothead or a pot dealer, but is not a murderer and she's not having it. And David takes it. David's good about it. He's on the David phone. He's great. asking all the right questions. He keeps his cool. He's he's not unkind to her. Okay, so they then put a title card on the screen after the conversation ends that say, Public Records Confirm Gary's Story That He Did Not Have a Daughter in 1993. Right. So, but during that phone call, David says, this is why I stopped you earlier. David says to Bigfoot Gary, do you know blankety blankety blank? And that's the name of the alleged killer. And Bigfoot right. Gary says... I don't really know him. I did some work with him. It's just, it seems all right. We've done like a deal or two yeah. here and there that were mutually advantageous. Right, yeah. Not really close and whatever. He lives in the area, and I do know who you're talking about. But So, whether or not this happened when they say it happened, it was a little neat because it makes for a conclusion to the series, right? He has a, David has apparently the entire time that all of this is being filmed, he has been trying to get in touch with the owner of the farm where he was hanging out that night. Basically, the guy that the crazy guy ran in to tell this story. And so he says, eventually he got back to me. He doesn't want to be on camera. He doesn't want his name used. But this is the story that he tells. He says... And David says, right up front... Of everybody that I talked to in this whole thing, this is the guy I'm the most afraid of. Yeah. Which is like, wow. The story was this. In 1993, the white marijuana growers were starting to get nervous about the influx of Mexican nationals who were coming into the community. And they had this theory baseless or not, we don't know, that they were trying to get hired on by older marijuana growers so they could basically take over their farms when they died. If the farms weren't left to anyone, it was all just there for them to work. So they got this theory in their head, and these old white growers were sitting around, and one of them said, I wish we had something like the chupacabra to scare them off. And another one said, well, we don't have chupacabras, but we've got Bigfoot. And that supposedly put an idea in their head to begin circulating these stories, which David heard shortly after his arrival in Branscombe in 1993, that there were these aggressive Bigfoots out there, that they were bluff-charging people, that they were throwing rocks at cars, that they were scary as all hell. But that wasn't good enough. They needed to go further. So they murdered these three. Somebody, not the guy on the phone, of course, 
a friend of a friend of a friend, decided... But they came to this little cabal of men who made the decision about starting the rumors. The same cabal made the decision that these particular three were in some way maybe involved with the cartel, but they were trying to muscle in on their business. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to make them an example. And so they not only killed them, they defiled and dismembered them using bolt cutters, pickaxes, and forklifts to make it look like they were savagely mauled by a giant creature. And then they staged it so that the chatterboxes, as they put it, like the guy who came running into the farm, would discover the scene, which I guess means the people highest on meth, because that is a pretty accurate description of how that guy was. Yeah. And the quote was, they saw what they were supposed to see. So, David is... It seems like by the end of the series, David is convinced that this is the the explanation of what he heard that night. This is what led to that guy running into the cabin. And so the final point that he makes is the camera drone shot drifts up higher and higher above his car, winding down a forest mountain road with all the shadowy woods of Mendocino County all around him, is that we've heard it before. We are the real monsters. Greed is the real monster. So, all that laid out, what do you think, Eric Sharkwin? Did we hear the real story? Well, I'll say this about that. Um, I thought it was clear in the first five minutes what the real story was. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this, uh, I, and I will say at the outset, this was way better than I thought it was going to be. Yes, I thought, I thought the same this thing. was going to be ridiculous, and maybe I picked it because I thought it maybe might even be a little funny. And what it was was it reminded me of Boogie Nights. You remember Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Um, Boogie Nights used pornography as a way to describe what was happening in society at large. Mm. Over a period, over a period of time, mm-hmm. like as the pornography, as the society changed, so did the pornography. And I thought this was kind of the same thing, using mm. this particular area and this particular the pot trade, right, to describe socially where we were as a country over a period of time, right. And that placed right alongside with this very traumatized man. Like one of the most interesting moments in the whole thing to me was after Gary had gotten after Gary, after David had gotten the story of Gary, Bigfoot Gary hiring some, uh, the guy whose name who uh, Valdemort, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he right. who must not be named right. um, to uh, kill these three guys because they raped his daughter there is a moment where, in reflection, David says, if that's what happened, if he hired this guy to kill, if these guys raped his daughter and he hired these guys to kill him, then good for them. Right. Like, I kind of wish everybody who'd raped somebody, this is speaking as a, you know, somebody who was raped as a very small child. Right, um, as a seven-year-old, yeah. Right. Adorable kid. The pictures are just, it broke your heart. When they told the story. Yeah. But he was like, okay with that. He said, but if they kill these people because they were Mexican, then he won't get punished as bad as he should be. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was a very clear sort of moral place for him. Right. Um, in the story. And the whole 
three episode arc was really more about that than right. it was about. They addressed Sasquatch, but even when they got to the guy who was actually a Sasquatch expert that I would like to have heard more from, they didn't really spend a lot of time on that. Like there was not really ever a point at which David seriously considered that yeah. Sasquatch had killed these three men. Like what, but what he was looking for was an explanation of this moment. A, did it really happen? And B, if it did, how did it really happen? Cause Bigfoot really, um, and so that was included, but it quickly migrated into being a much more sort of interesting social commentary about the rest of the country as as using this microcosm mm-hmm. of the of the Emerald Triangle and an exploration of who he was um, uh, as as an investigative journalist and the Eisenberg principle, if you will, of of. Um, being an investigative journalist, the fact that the observer changes the event by observing it, that he brought his own set right. of beliefs and understandings to it as he was observing the event. So was the ending really a surprise to me? Oh, wow. What do you know? A bunch of criminals growing pot in the region arranged for the killing of these men for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it looks like they went with the Scooby-Doo motive for, you mm-hmm. know, the old man... Miller running everybody off as meddling kids, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> proving that it really wasn't a ghost after all. Because, like, duh. Yeah, right. What did you think, Christopher Rice? Well, I, I thought it. I think all of that is really interesting. I, I had a similar response. I realized pretty early on. Okay, this is not going to be a Bigfoot special. I think we passed over it earlier, but the second episode opens with an interview with a man who claims to have been wearing the Bigfoot suit in the Patterson Gimlin film. Um, right. He, and so it's like, this is not a special made by people who are swept up by Bigfoot mythology. I also thought it was interesting that he, David did not get, he stayed neutral as you were just describing. He said, if it's right. this, I have this emotional reaction as a rape survivor. If it's this, I have this reaction. He remained an investigative journalist. He didn't start right. to sort of lose his focus. Um, but yeah, I absolutely. And I, I, the thing that was coming to me as you were talking just now is if you're younger and you're listening to this, I think it's easy for you maybe not to be aware of the fact that marijuana, despite how we feel about it today, used to be considered a very dangerous drug that it was around this time. This was 93 in 92. I believe it was, it was a major scandal that Bill Clinton, who was running for president, might have smoked marijuana in college and famously said, I smoked it, but I didn't inhale, which everybody thought was bullshit. Like it was a because it was was bullshit. It was a there was a social attitude towards marijuana that doesn't exist as much in the culture today, which was being used to justify these highly militaristic operations that we were talking about earlier in the episode. And I just think that's an important history lesson to put out. there. Yes. At the risk of sounding like, you know, somebody's older uncle. But given that we recently did an episode where we came to terms with the fact that a lot of people weren't around when 9-11 happens, I'm processing my own age in the right, wake of it is. that. It's, it's an interesting and uh, a highly surprising series of revelations. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, the, the explanation... 
I think that started off the third episode, you know, that we create all of our own monsters. They were interviewing an author who's presented. It's like the Bigfoot experts steadily became more and more skeptical of Bigfoot. It was like they were sort of dismantling the Bigfoot myth or what they saw as the Bigfoot myth as we went along. And he said, you know, we create our own monsters and these are all inventions. And I think philosophically and psychologically, there's a lot of truth to that argument. I think it's possible that there is an animal form out there, you know, that we haven't really encountered in a meaningful way that scientists haven't captured. And I think the most compelling thing that they say on that front is when they pan up and just show the mountains and mountains of wilderness. I think here's here's what I basically want to say. I'll get to the point. There is a lot more empty space in, on this planet than we realize. Living in mostly urban areas or civilized areas, areas that have literally been developed, there is a lot of empty space on this planet. And I'm not saying mostly. it's full of portals, but I'm just saying there are a lot of life forms that are left to be discovered. How many times do we have to pull up a fish from the ocean that has been thought to be extinct for millions and millions of years? How many, you know, there, I think there are certain scientific truths like very large animals could not be living in secret because they would need an enormous amount of food to survive. And we would see the evidence of their well, and it would also, you know? I mean, the biggest thing that they sort of brushed across, but is like ultimately the answer is like, so where's the Bigfoot body? Where's the skeleton? You know, like yeah. they would be dead somewhere. We would find a dead one. Right. That's, yeah, that's a good. Point. That's ultimately the, 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 the dead, the big giveaway. Well, somebody says, and I think, again, this is going back to the professor, and I'll put a side note here. I read a little bit about this online before we did the episode, and I said the filmmaker who did it contacted his friend David because he had become obsessed with a podcast called The Sasquatch Chronicles, which I now want to go and listen to. But he said to David, do you, do you know anybody who has a Bigfoot story? And he was like, um, actually, <laughs> I do. And he did. And so... Oh, but that's the, interesting. But the professor apparently, I think, or I think he was starting to make the statement that how often do we find bear skeletons in the woods? Apparently, that's a rare occurrence. And I was like, okay, wait, 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 wait. I need to, I need to hear more about that because if that's really rare, I need to know why that is. Or bears going off someplace to die, like a, you know, they say a cat will go off somewhere to die, you know. So, but you're right; those are all questions that were not the focus of this documentary. I mean, they may have no. come up in me it watching really it. Was, but... The documentary was never really about that. Yeah. But I believe it. I absolutely think the explanation is plausible. I think as a writer, I then have to answer the question of why did the farmer, what was the motivation to share this story with the guy, the with David, who was the center? Like, why, t why call and tell him this? There was a lot of why are these people talking to David? You know? Well, I think... One of the things that was interesting about that to me is that the way it was set up, it was like way down the road, this guy who on whose pot farm he worked called him and told him this. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that that's when he got the call. I, I was saying the same like, thing. Yeah, he right. Have been in touch with him all along and they just mm -hmm. had that conversation for the purposes of exposition, right. for telling the story and put it in the way that they put it in. I think it was a much more carefully structured story than that. And mm -hmm. I think the sense of anxiety and investigation that they created was right. more created than it was actually a part of the story. If it was clear to me 
in five minutes what had happened, mm-hmm. basically. You know, right. I didn't have the specific story that they told, but I had pretty close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, in five minutes, to a hard-boiled investigative journalist who'd gone undercover with white supremacists and Nazis. Mm-hmm. Like, it had to have been clear to him, you know, bo- like in... 0.2 seconds. Like, this mm-hmm. is not some gullible Gert who's going to be roaming around. What he did have was the journalistic integrity to find all of the the substantiating mm-hmm. investigation to support mm-hmm. his conclusion. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he was ever really in doubt of it, and I don't know that he had to wait to get it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Totally. Like, I just think it was presented that way, and it may have been actually the way that it unfolded, but I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that. I didn't get that sense. They went to great lengths at the beginning of each episode to say that the phone conversations were developed and constructed and may have mm-hmm. even been staged in order to create the whatchamacallit. And since it was a phone conversation that ultimately described the story, it was like, is this the phone conversation you're talking about? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 Good but suggestion, I Eric Shawkman. I, I enjoyed it. I think he did talk to Voldemort. Yeah. You think he talked to the alleged killer he never I named? I think that yes. at some point, the person who was telling him about Voldemort put him in touch with Voldemort, and Voldemort said, because Voldemort hung up on him. Mm. Mm-hmm. I never heard about that. I That's the right Boop, 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 boop. That yeah. was, that's mm-hmm. the only person who hung up on him, and I thought, yeah, that was Voldemort. Okay. Uh Next week, uh, we are beginning Pride Month, and we're going to do it with a month that focuses on crimes well, that have not impacted just us, the actually, LGBT it's going community. To be, yeah, uh, people all over the world are beginning Pride Month. Absolutely, but we're going to begin it here on the podcast too. Uh, Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club is heading back to YouTube and the Real Stories YouTube channel for their video episode. Murder in Cape Town, who killed Bruno Braun? Bruno Braun was a gay man who was murdered in Cape Town, South Africa several years ago. I have never heard of this case before. Um, nope. News to me. Uh, yeah, case, absolutely. But it seemed, it seemed like something that's sort of a more international look at um, the community. It's still True Crime TV Club. Um, absolutely. Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. And um, it's also, a you know, a morbid but an apropos way of kicking off the our observance of Pride Month. Yeah, I mean, we in our sick, dark way. We talk about true (laughs) crime, so we would be erasing LGBT people from the true crime. We we have to talk about crimes that happen to them as well. So, which we do frequently here on the podcast. Frequently do absolutely. Um, So yeah, that's not we have not been strangers to that topic. So yes, we will be celebrating. And I'm glad you enjoyed the um the Bigfoot thing. Yeah, I ended up. I was surprised. Yeah. That I enjoyed it as much as I did. I, I would recommend it to people, even if you've heard us. I think there's a lot of interesting interviews and commentary and history mm-hmm. um, covered in the piece. And it's very well put together. It's the Duplass brothers, right? The, yes, yes. So they're noteworthy filmmakers of, of in their own right. So it's well done and well mm-hmm. put together. And uh, he's an interesting character. I yeah. Would, be interested to know more about david as well so absolutely yeah, it was a surprise choice absolutely who knew i who thought it was knew? just gonna be wacky 
Bigfoot's a murderer. Ah. Yeah, totally. Well, maybe we'll go back to doing what science again, and we can do a Bigfoot themed episode. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. We I don't mean to science in a while. Pitch you ideas when we're recording, when we're actively recording. Usually, we reserve those for our, our business meetings, which are super formal and oh, official. Oh well, you'll never remember. Uh, until next time and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shawquin. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.